This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers, and I'm Allison Southwick. I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and he's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Sweet Jesus, I'm happy to be here, Allison. How are you? Sweet Jesus. You know I just got back from Wisconsin. I do. That's right. And that's not exactly why I said it, but it is appropriate, I guess, isn't it? Did you have cheese while you were there? Oh, we had. Did you have frozen yogurt? So much frozen cheese. Custard. We frozen did not. Custard. We did not have the custard. We didn't. But we ate lots of cheese and lots of cheese skirts. Mm-hmm. And that voice you just heard asking about the frozen custard is our special guest on today's show, Buck Hartzell. Because today we're going to talk about the importance of keeping an investing journal. Even if you're not investing yet, a journal is a great way to track your interests and learn more about your own temperament, so you can keep it in check. We're also going to answer your question about borrowing from your 401k. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. All right, like I said at the top of the show, we have a guest on today. His name is Buck Hartzell, and he is the Director of Investor Operations here at The Motley Fool. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we'll get into more about you and why you're here later in the show, but for now, it's time for Answers Answers. And this week's question comes from Wayne. Wayne writes, My family is beginning to think about building a home. I have a rollover 401k from a previous employer. Is there a way to borrow from it instead of cashing out like I could do if it was part of my employer 401k plan? So let's talk a little bit about borrowing from a 401k. You can borrow up to half the vested balance up to $50,000. You actually pay the interest to yourself, and it's usually it's determined by your company, but it's usually the prime rate which these days is 3.5%, plus maybe another percentage or two. Um, You pay the loan back on a specific schedule, so you can't just send in payments whenever you feel like it, and it's with after-tax dollars. So it's not with your contributions to the 401k. That's not how you pay it back. You pay it back with other payments. Um, Generally, it has to be paid back within five years. It can be longer, up to 15 years, if you're using it to buy a house. But if you leave your employer, you generally have to pay the money back within 60 days. If you don't pay it back, it's considered a distribution. It'll be taxed and penalized. So for Wayne, it sounds like he's not with his employer anymore, so this won't be an option. However, if he rolls that money over to an IRA, he has another option. Generally speaking, if you take money out of an IRA before you're age 59 and a half, you have to pay a 10% penalty. There's an exception for people who are first-time homebuyers. You can take out $10,000 from your IRA. If your spouse has an IRA, he or she can also take out $10,000. It's exempt from that 10% penalty. Still could be taxed, but not penalized. The definition of a first-time homebuyer is actually kind of lenient. It just means if you haven't owned a primary residence in the previous two years. So you may have owned one five years ago, and you're okay. As we talked about before, you can actually take out the contributions to a Roth IRA, tax and penalty-free, anytime. Then once you start getting into the earnings, that's when you hit that $10,000 limit for a first-time home buyer. If the account's been open more than five years, that $10,000 comes out tax-free. If not, it's still taxed, but not penalized. So, Wayne has options. But of mm-hmm. course, as the retirement guy at The Molly Fool, of course I have to say, generally speaking, you use your retirement accounts for a home as a last resort. 
if you're taking money out of your IRA to buy the house, you can't put it back in, so you shortchanged any growth you would have had. With borrowing from the 401k, you have to sell your investment. So if you are borrowing $50,000, you have to sell that money. You won't receive any growth on that. So you are paying the interest back to yourself, so that's good. But if your investments would have done better than that interest rate, you missed out on that. On the flip side, of course, if you borrow that money right before the stock market tanks and you had to sell your stocks, that actually works out pretty well. But most people aren't very good at timing that type of thing. So while Wayne does have options, as does anyone else who has a retirement account and they're looking to buy the house, generally speaking, the retirement accounts are the last place to go. Yeah, and I'd say Robert and I are both on the 401k committee, kind of founding members here at the Molly Fool, been on a long time. And um, I think we, we do feel pretty strongly that retirement money is retirement money, right? There's hopefully you can get some other ways to save and um, come up with that money for the house um, besides if, touching your retirement. What if I'm just doing it for a down payment? She asked, as someone who is looking to collect a lot of money for a down payment. That in theory, then once I sold my house, then I would get that equity out of my house. And then, hey, we've got a question here from Allison. She writes, <laughs> it's really hard to buy a house in the Northern Virginia area because of coming up with a 20% down payment. Do I have like, are you letting me get away with borrowing from my 401k it's, if it's, it's just for until I sell my house? It could be. I mean, especially if, especially if by putting down 20%, you are able to get a better interest rate on the loan and avoid PMI. Um, and certainly anyone living in the Washington, D.C. area or some of these other big metro areas, it's very difficult to come up with that down payment. It's sort of like a, it's a, it's a life choice decision. Do you want the house now and enjoy it? You have a family and that's important to have. Knowing that you might have to retire a little later, that's a trade-off that a lot of people are happy with. Um, what some folks will say, though, is that if, if you don't have enough money to come up with a down payment on your own and you have to take money out of your retirement account, that means you might not have a lot of cash laying around. What happens if you buy the house and then you need to have a big repair or something like that? It's basically, many experts will just say, if you have to use your retirement account, that's a sign that maybe your finances, generally speaking, aren't ready for home ownership as it is, and that you should take more time. But you know, you have to make your own decisions, Allison, and I think you are a very financially <laughs> responsible person. So while I'm not exactly blessing it, I'm not cursing condemning it, it either. Condemning it. And I mean that honestly, I've known you for years. You, are, you and Ron are very financially responsible. For people like you to make that decision, I feel more comfortable than other people. There's a study from, from Fidelity that found that what happens when people first take out that loan is then it's sort of Makes it easier to take out another loan and another loan. People who take out Ooh, it's for, a gateway loan, sort of exactly. They, I think they use it serial withdrawalers <laughs> or something. But basically, like there's a correlation between people who take out loans and then people who take out hardship withdrawals too. It's just one of those things. Like once you've done it the first time, it makes it easier to do it again and right. again. We have a sip yeah. of sip of champagne at a wedding. Next thing you know, you're living under a bridge. Exactly. Drinking and, night train. And by the way, for those hardship withdrawals, you still pay the penalty. So like. You have to classify it as hardship, but it doesn't mean you get a break on the the penalty. So you still have to pay a fee on it. Yep, sucks. Yeah, it's true. So a lesson is avoid hardship. But <laughs> anyway, the bottom line for Wayne is, if you've got to borrow from your retirement, that is the place of last resort. Right. Unless you're Allison Southwick, in which case you have make made a series of really good choices, and so you can go ahead and buy that house that's just a little bit outside your reach. Yes. <laughs> yes. This episode is going very well for me. Coming up, we've got Buck Hartzell and the ins and outs and benefits of having an investing journal. But first, this episode is sponsored by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. 
Maybe you're looking to refinance your home or you're thinking about buying your first home and are curious about how much you can afford. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans makes it easy and you can do it all online or through their app. It only takes eight steps. So yeah, there is this house down the street that we've been looking at. So <laughs> I'm probably going to be heading over to Rocket Mortgage and you can too at quickenloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Dear Diary, what a day it's been. Dear Diary, Apple is great, but things have really fizzled out lately. I can't help it, but I keep thinking about Facebook. So dreamy and has so many friends. Twitter keeps thinking it has a chance, but I am so not interested. With this many options, what is a girl to do? Off to TJ Maxx to buy some new clogs. Toodles. Mm. So that was a line from my investing diary. I thought that was mine. It sounded exactly like mine. I did it, yeah. Well, we all love a good pair of clogs from TJ Maxx. So it's maybe not the best approach, and that's why we brought in Buck Hartzell. Uh, Again, he's the director of investor ops here at The Motley Fool. He has taught many fools the art of keeping a journal. So who better to guide us? Now, Buck, You've been with The Fool for a while now, haven't you? Sure, almost 18 years. I was just a kid when I started here. Bro and I had more hair. We were in better shape. And <laughs> Did you guys start within a short amount of time of each other? I was a year later. Yep. One of my favorite stories about Buck is, Buck, tell them how you got your job at The Motley Fool. Oh, how I got my job. Well, it's interesting because I followed The Fools. A lot of people did back in those days. Followed them on AOL and actually read The Motley Fool Investing Guide on my honeymoon. So my wife and I, uh, Tiffany, were reading The Motley Fool Investment Guide and followed on AOL, because I owned AOL stock at the time, and um, came back and uh, decided to uh, look for a job. We just got married, we moved to Connecticut, and applied to The Fool as almost a joke, right? Like, I enjoyed following them, and uh, came down for an interview. Anyhow, I think there was about 20 or 30 people and total fool at the time. You met everyone. It was like a two-day interview. Thought it went great. Knew a lot about the company. And uh, they kindly said, well, thanks for coming down, but I don't think you're the right person. And uh, that hurt a little bit. I had some pride <laughs> back then, you know? And uh, now I have three kids. I have no pride anymore. But back then I did. And so I wrote a letter. I said, listen, I think you're wrong. I kind of liked all the people. I got the vibe. I knew what the brand was about. Really liked what they were doing. And um, so let, I'll tell you what. I'll come down here work for a month. And... Um, if it works out, that's great. And if it doesn't, that's fine too. You don't have to pay me for the month or whatever else. Just appreciate the chance. And so I came down for that month and it's what, 18 years now. So uh, Olin Douglas, our CFO, still swears I've never been hired officially. So <laughs> not only do you work here, right there. Yeah. but now our game room is named after you. Uh, the Hearts of Learning Center, right? That's it moves right. places every now and then. It's down on the second floor now. Yeah. So yeah. You have your own neon light down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. So why should someone keep an investing journal? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Allison. And uh, um, Robert knows I like quotes, so I have a big list of quotes uh, on a Word document. It's many hundreds long. And I found one that's kind of perfect here. And it says, uh, you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. And that's Richard Feynman. He's a physicist, um, pretty smart guy, all about scientific method, scientific integrity. And that's really important for investing, too. I mean, uh, investing is part art and part science. um, But it's really important that we don't fool ourselves. And it turns out when it comes to money situations and money questions, um, it's really easy to do. Um, And uh, I would say our minds, a lot of people think of them as a tape recorder. So if you ask somebody, oh, what about the financial crisis and all this stuff in 2008 and the the bubble in real estate? And everybody goes, oh, yeah, that was easy to see. Everybody saw that. Um, Turns out, at the time, 
Not many people did. Not many economists were forecasting it. They all put their GDP growth numbers. Everybody was wrong and everything else. Um, but after the fact, they're kind of really good at that. And it's true. We kind of recreate what we hoped had happened in the past. And that's why, can't even talk to older people, if you remember them, it's like everything was great about the older times. Oh, our house was awesome. We lived on the best <laughs> street. The weather was great. We loved everything. Now you kids just playing on your iPods and wasting all your time. We played baseball on the streets with no shoes and we're happy about it. Turns out it wasn't all great, right? But that's the kind of the way we recreate our memories because we want to be happy about them. That can hurt us in investing. It can hurt our future returns. So it's good to keep a journal. So when we're talking about having an investing journal, are we talking about a literal leather-bound book or a moleskin, or do you use Word? I think some people use Excel. Like, what yeah, yeah. do you use? So I'd say uh, electronic is great. It's easier, and the great thing about it is you can search. So I have kind of a little method. So I use a Word document. It's pretty easy that way. I actually checked today. It's 389 pages long. Whoa! Um, so it's pretty long. Uh, the great thing about that is when I mention a particular company, I always write the ticker. Um, so you can go ahead and search that. If you mentioned it eight years ago, you can find all the kind of references really quickly by using a Word document. I would say I also have a supplement where I have an Excel all of the transactions that I've made, so I can see all my buys and sells, and I can kind of sort them. And that's kind of nice because you can match it up with your journal. But you know, some people like to keep a written journal. I understand that. The problem is it's really hard to search it. You know, if you get one that is 400 pages, how do I find where I last remember? So I, I would recommend electronic if if that works for you. So in your journal, you're tracking stocks that you like, how you're feeling. Like, what are you, what are you writing in your yeah, journal? Yeah, so that, so that's the thing. I think um, you, you need to track. Kind of, you want a running dialogue, certainly of the companies that you're interested in, not just the ones that you own, but the ones that you're kind of investigating and and doing research on. So there's a lot of research in my notes. But I think you're right. You also do have to write about your feelings in there, and that's something particularly for some of our analysts. And I would say some of the guy analysts particularly, it's not easy or they kind of laugh or giggle <laughs> when you're like, oh, I'm supposed to write about my emotions, right? But it turns out like emotions, both greed and fear kind of drive action for us. And that's not always a great thing in investing. And I think, you know, one of the things the fool kind of prides ourselves on is being rational and making rational decisions when it comes to investing. And uh, it turns out if you write about those emotions in your journal, you're less likely to act on them. So it's fine to you know, be fearful in the depths of 2008 and 2009. Go ahead and write it on paper, right? Put it down there, put it in your journal. You're less likely to act and sell everything as a result of it. So, I, clearly, it's great to have your emotions. The other thing that I'd say when you're writing a journal is you certainly want to understand why you've taken a make taken an action. So if you like a particular company, write down why you like it, but then also add in what you think is going to happen over the next three to five years. I have a long investing horizon, so I want to make some calls on what I think is going to happen. And then when you go back three to five years later, you can kind of hold yourself accountable for did those things come to fruition or not. And um, so it's important to kind of write your journal in a way that you can understand why, you know, based on the facts that you knew then, why you made the decision and what you thought was going to happen. So don't just put in, I bought Microsoft today and it was at 45. <laughs> and then that's not going to help I'm you, awesome. right? Yeah, I'm awesome. Way to go right? me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need to put a little bit more detail in there. Go ahead and write it out. And that's very helpful. Yeah. What about when you sell a stock? What should you be thinking when you're writing there? Yeah, so it's interesting. When you sell it, that's a great time. And what I do, and a lot of people kind of compare their annual performance, I do as well. So I, I kind of look at how I did overall for a year. But a year's an arbitrary number, right? And I realize there's going to be years you know, where you lose to the market, and that's totally fine. But when you sell and actually close out a position, that's a great time to review 
okay, how long did I have this? When did I buy it? What did I think was going to happen? How did this stock do versus the market over that time frame? And then go back and kind of write about that in your journal. So that's what I do. Hey, this was a terrible pick. Look what happened. This is what I thought was going to happen. And boy, they really got steamrolled because energy prices collapsed and oil went to $30 a barrel. And by the way, I didn't think that was going to happen. The accountability part is important because we all know that the majority of mutual funds don't beat the market. Right. And from the few studies that are out there, the majority of individual investors don't beat the market. So it takes a certain amount of arrogance, frankly, to say that you can pick stocks that would beat the market. And that's fine. We're all about that here at the Molly Fool. But <laughs> arrogance. We're all about arrogance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but you got to keep yourself accountable because it could be, come to a point where maybe you shouldn't be picking your own investments for too much of your portfolio, right. at least until you've learned a little bit more. Yep. And, 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 and you say arrogance, I'd say overconfidence. And one of the things that's interesting, if you look at the studies, investing, if you're the best in the world, you're wrong 40% of the time. And on yep. average, if you look across our scorecards, we're, you know, 50% were right, 50% were wrong. It turns out that overconfidence is most prevalent in activities that are essentially a coin flip, like 50-50, and that's investing perfectly. So it's really easy for people to fool themselves and they're, I'm great. You know, especially lately, we've had uh, pretty much of a bull market here for several years and a good recovery. And um, most people don't even track their performance relative to the S&P. So they could be up 13%, but the S&P is up 28%. They think they did an awesome job when actually they could have just bought an index fund and sat right. on their butt and done better. So most don't even track their performance let alone hold themselves accountable to a, to a higher standard there. And overconfidence is kind of prevalent in, in investing. And so yeah. uh, having a journal is one way to be humbled. And as I tell people yeah. in, this, in this business or the, the activity of investing, if you're not humble, you will be humbled at some point. And that's absolutely <laughs> true. So don't be too overconfident. And that's why we diversify, Alice. And that's why we have multiple positions. And there are crazy things that can happen to great companies, you know? E. coli for uh, Chipotle and, and norovirus and all that kind of stuff. There's nobody that built a model for Chipotle and was estimating how many restaurants <laughs> they're going to have was going to expect a widespread outbreak of right. this kind of stuff where you'd see store traffic go down 30. I guarantee no one had Chipotle modeled that their store traffic was going to go down 37%. But these things happen. And that's why we own more than one stock, right? And uh, it's important. So you will be humbled, but having a journal like that, and it's not about beating yourself up. It is just holding yourself accountable and learning about your own tendencies so you can do some things to counteract them over time. Right. What's one of the biggest lessons that you have learned about yourself as an investor? So I, I'd say one, and what I like to start with is generally what's true for most people. And these are kind of backed up by different studies in those. And, and there's a thing called the disposition effect. And Terrence O'Dean is a professor out west who's done a lot of work with this. And it, and it basically says we have a tendency, an innate tendency, to want to lock in our gains and sell off our winners too early. We also have a tendency to hold our losers too long. And if you talk to somebody, and a good way to kind of get around that, and I do this in my journal, it's one of the things you do sometimes, is imagine you sold every stock that you have today and you have to reinvest everything. Hmm. What would you own? And then you compare the list of what you would buy today to what you actually own. And there's usually five or six stocks on there, depending on how many you have, that are like, I noticed that you don't have these on your list. <laughs> they usually aren't the big winners in your portfolio, right? And if you ask somebody, well, why don't you have these five stocks on there? Like, well, things didn't go exactly as I thought. Things didn't work out that great. I'm not that crazy about them. And you ask them, well, why didn't you sell them? Because there's probably some tax advantages. Robert will tell you, you could have done some tax loss selling and canceled out some of your gains. But it turns out, like most people don't want to do that. They're waiting for it to get back to break even. Mm -hmm. and that, 
And there's no law of physics that says a stock has to come <laughs> back to where you bought it, right? And, and also, even if it did, you might have been better off buying those five or six things that you really like today and have a little bit more confidence in. And um, so that's important. So I'd say our tendency is to, to hold those losers too long. And over time, if you sell off your best stocks and you hold your losers, you end up with a portfolio of stuff that you don't really like very much. And so that's a lesson, I would say. And so if you look to sell, if you need to raise money to buy that home down the street that you really like, uh, or for other reasons, start with your losers, not your winners. And um, the other thing I would say is the counteract of that is if you're looking to add money and invest it, start with the stocks you already own. And instead of looking at the ones that are down below where you bought them, look at the ones that are above where you bought them. Turns out it's probably a better chance that those are better investments and better companies. All right, one final lesson that you've learned from keeping an investing journal. Sure, this is one that we talk about at the full quite a, quite a bit, and I would say in your journal, keep in mind that you want to be able to separate process from outcomes. And that might seem a little bit weird, but if I ask you know each of you here at the table and tell me your worst investing decision over the last year, and I've done this regularly with a bunch of analysts that we have at the Motley Fool, we go around each year and say, "What's your biggest mistake?" Invariably, their biggest mistake is the stock that went down the worst, right? And went down the most, right? <laughs> yes. It's the biggest loser. <laughs> But the, but Maybe the that's what I was going to yeah, say. Right, right, yeah. My <laughs> stock that went down the most. But but the reality is, you you can have a really good process with a bad outcome. That happens all the time. Like somebody that valued Chipotle at a certain thing and didn't pro- project that they were going to have the drop in traffic from their E. coli outbreak. I'm not going to fault them for that, right? That's really difficult. Nobody would have foreseen that. So your process could have been great. The outcome might have sucked temporarily, and that's fine. So think about when you're writing and reviewing your things. Separate the outcome from the actual process. Because the whole goal of a journal over time is to help you build a unique process that suits your own strengths and abilities. So over time, you learn your tendencies. I can say like one of my early tendencies was I kind of bought things a little bit too early, and I sold them too early. But I was able to see that over a bunch of transactions and over reading my things. So I adjust the way I invest, because that's my personality, right? So I kind of hold things longer than I feel comfortable doing sometimes, right? And that's good. So separate process from outcomes. And that's a really important thing that I think your journal can help you do. Yeah. And that's a good point about separating your emotions and recognizing recognizing where you might be tripping yourself yep. up. And write about your emotions, guys. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> write it. It's, not you. it's cool you know to what? do that. If you think Chipotle is still dreamy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Then you know what? Go for it. That's yeah, right. yeah, he's a little expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he is. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, he is. But well, you know, whatever. He's seen a doctor. He's okay now. <laughs> yeah, right? He's seeing a doctor. He's gotten some good medication. It's going to clear up. Right, right. <laughs> that's funny. That's so bad. I actually uh, asked a couple other people around the Fool if they were up for talking about their investing journal a little bit and some lessons that they've learned. And so, Jim Mueller and Blake Boss, uh, Jim Mueller, he's an analyst at the Fool, and Blake Boss works on user experience. They both said, sure, I'll share with you some lessons I've learned. And so, um, yeah, so I went to their desk and I asked them, and this is what they had to say. Back in the downturn of 2008-2009, afterwards I thought I, I really missed it. I was not putting money into my accounts and buying opportunities. But when I actually went back and looked at the data of my investing journal, I was putting money at work and was capturing uh, really good deals. Uh, one, for instance, was I bought shares of Intuitive Surgical at just about the low point of $101 a share. And today, they're, I think they're over 600 So that turned out really, really well. I started my investment journal in 2008. And one of the early lessons I learned from it is that 
should be really careful to not expose yourself to a particular country or trend with all your stocks. So, for example, the mistake I made um, back in 08 and 09, China was a really big deal. And so I looked at these companies, China Green Agriculture, Rio International. You know, you look at those and you're like, okay, yeah, so some of these might be a little shady. Um, so it's going to be hard to tell. And so I invested in six of them. They all seem like good values, good growth prospects. And it ended up that every single one... <laughs> was fraudulent. And so, um, yeah, that didn't work out for me and it taught me a valuable lesson. And the second lesson I would have is just that, you know, the journal's really fun. You know, I've been doing it for eight years and it's really neat to look back at like what I started at. And I was a big value hunter and just going for all this value stuff, not really focusing on buying great businesses. And then you look at it now and I'm really focused on the long term. Buying great businesses at reasonable prices is my new philosophy. Um, and so I just encourage people to do it just to watch how your story evolves over time. It's fun. Thanks to Jim and Blake for opening up their deepest, darkest secrets from their investing journal. And thank you, Buck, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was great, you guys. Um, thanks for being so open with your with your investing mistakes and wins as well. Always happy to you know, share my mistakes. I have lots of them. <laughs> it's par for the course. Yeah. Time for some housekeeping. Friend of the show, Killian, listened to our episode with motherly money advice, and she wrote in, Mom was frugal, and she taught more by example than by words, but she did give me one explicit piece of advice. Our family is Hispanic, and my mother made the best tortillas in the world, and one day she was making tortillas for expected company, and I started to count the tortillas, and she told me in Spanish, when you count the tortillas, you count the devil's ribs. I took this to mean to enjoy the good things, share them with family and friends, and don't be hyper vigilant over whether there's enough to go around. There's enough. So I thought this was great. Thank you, Killian. You know I love you. And I was thinking our other listeners probably have some great sayings and idioms as well, maybe in languages other than English that they were taught as kids. So I thought this would make for a fun future show. But that does mean that I need our listeners to send them in. So if you have one, drop us a line at answersatfool.com. We would love to hear the great life advice you've received. And if we like it, we'll share it in a future episode. And next piece of housekeeping. I wanted to give a quick shout out to Steve and Renee for visiting Fool HQ this week. They were kind enough to bring a bottle of bourbon with them for Chris Hill, which he has yet to share. So there's that. (laughs) I think we need to start talking about our favorite drinks. Right? Right. What would be what would you talk about? Oh, craft beers probably. All right, craft beers. Shirley Temples. Shirley Temples. Fresh squeezed orange juice Fresh and juice. homemade root beer for me. Okay. Homemade root beer? So you guys have a beverage. Uh, I'm just going to say that I really love gold cougarans. I just think they're the best. They're so fun. So, you know, come visit us anytime. <laughs> just bring your gold cougarans if you're like what we're doing as a thank you. Um, all right. Also, last piece of housekeeping is that Bro, Rick, and I are going to be at Fool Fest this week. So if you're coming, do not hesitate to come up to us and say hi. Also, if you happen to talk to Tom Gardner or Andy Cross, Tom is, of course, the CEO of The Fool and our boss. Andy Cross is also one of our bosses. You know, if you see them, tell them how much you love the show. Don't hold back. Just like tell them that it's your favorite thing ever. Gush away. Gush away to Tom Gardner and Andy Cross when you see them at Fool Fest. Not just them. Anybody you come across. Everyone. Really, anybody who works at the Fool Everyone. just gush. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a fun surprise. I designed a t-shirt that's going to be at Fool Fest that people get for free. 
All right, that's the show. Again, our email is answers at fool.com. Feel free to drop us a line with those awesome idioms and money life lessons that you were taught as a child from your elders. Uh, the show is edited vociferously by Rick Angle. Yeah, I came prepared this time. <laughs> uh, what else do I usually say? Ah, well, whatever. For Robert Brokamp, Buck Hartzell, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.